Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome today to the Italian Studies channel on the New Books Network. I'm Ellen Nirenberg from Wesleyan University. I'm here today with Sergio Di Goletto, a professor of Italian and film studies at the University of Oregon. Professor Di Goletto is the author of the recently published study uh, entitled in Italian, Le norme traviate, saggi sul genere e sulla sessualità nel cinema e nella televisione italiana. Uh, translated into English, though the book is in Italian, Overturned Norms, I think we're going to come back to the title, Um, Essays on uh, Gender and Sexuality in Italian Cinema and Television. So that's the uh, subject of Sergio Di Goletto's book. It is the first to be published in a series edited by Marco Dallagassa and Federico Zecca for Meltemi Publishers in Italy. Sergio Rigoletto's study consists of a critical introduction followed by six chapters that explore the visualization of queer characters and queer thematics in Italian popular cinema and television since about the middle of the 20th century. While the study follows a more or less chronological order, I think the author nonetheless eschews some of the historical inevitabilities that such a chronology tends to imply, and we may be able to get him to elucidate on that point in our conversation today. Beginning with the Commedia Italiana, Sergio Di Goretto begins to ask questions about queer characters in the background and offers a reading of, among other texts, Federico Fellini's 1960 La Dolce Vita. This is followed by examinations of what we might call a panic about masculinity in 1970s cinema. Subsequent chapters dedicated to texts like Fezzano Spetex, Le Fate Ignoranti, and Luca Guadagnino's Call Me By Your Name make clear that popular cinema is one of the primary objects of study. But these chapters are also accompanied by some dedicated to lesser-known television texts and documentary cinema. The book is written in Italian and published in Italy, something else I think we'll be able to uh, discuss today. Welcome, Sergio Rigoletto, to the Italian Studies channel on the New Books Network. Hello, Ellen, and thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. I want to start immediately with the title of your text, Le Norme Traviate. Could you, um, I don't know how, how pleasing my translation was of the overturned norms, but I was wondering if you could talk about that and the, uh, the rationale or the reasoning behind the title. Yes. So yeah, your translation was great. Um, I guess it's, the meaning would be to, to append norms um, is something like to make visible something that is supposed to remain invisible, to uh, mark something that is supposed to be unmarked and, and transparent. And the norms I write about are you know, sexual uh, and gender norms. Um, and you mentioned the um, Italian-style comedy um, I write about in the book. Um, this is really like the genesis of the, of the 
or the project, how I I came to become interested in in this category, the norm. Um, and this has something to do with my interest in this particular kind of comedy that was very prominent and, and popular between the, the 50s and 60s. So these are the years of the economic miracle. Um, it's a period when Italy is going through a very intense process of modernization and industrialization. And basically I became fascinated with the central figure of these comedies, the Italiano Medio, which in English would be the, the Italian everyman. Um, this is a strange kind of figure. Um, it's an ordinary Italian, average Italian. But it's not um, like someone, let's say, James Stewart, right? That would be the, the Hollywood equivalent, the everyday all-American. Um, the Italian everyman uh, of this comedy is more like a hero and an anti-hero. You know, someone who's very ordinary, good-natured, a kind of family man, uh, but he's also you know, self-centered, uh, ridiculous, uh, at times even uh, morally repulsive. So I was reading a lot about this, this figure, um, and as I was reading all these books, um, I would see all these repeated attempts to describe this figure with lots of adjectives, analysis, examples. Um, and I realized that there was something that was never said, which was actually the most uh, defining identity marker of this character. And that is um, you know, his heterosexuality. Uh, and that's really the starting question um, of the book. How can an identity marker be so pervasive and yet become um, so transparent, so invisible, to the point that it's never really acknowledged as, as such. So that's how I became interested in the category of, of norm, which is what the book is about. Um, it's about the gender and sexual norms um, and how they, they shape really the, the imaginaries, um, the collective imaginaries, of Italian cinema and television between the 50s and, and the 21st century. And here, you know, heterosexuality, in particular male heterosexuality, is the central norm I focus on, especially in the first half of the book. Um, and perhaps I should say what I mean uh, by norm. Uh, I mean two things. Um, Norm as as rule, as a law, uh, what basically sets what is wrong and what is right. But the norm is also a habit. Um, so I I reflect on the norm as a convention, as something that is repeatedly shown and affirmed, as something that acquires authority precisely through this process of uh, repeated affirmation. And, you know, in the first half of the book, um, 
I examine how Italian cinema constructs for, for its audience um, this kind of collective sense of identity, so this sense of who we are. And this we, this us, is of course the, the Italian people, but it's not just um, a national community. Um, th this first person plural is also about those who are understood to have, to, to have the right uh, to be within society, within the boundaries of the normal. Um, so the book is a, is a study about the construction of these boundaries of the normal, of normal society, um, as they appear on Italian screens. That, thank you for that. I, I, uh, that's so useful. Um, and it seems that the, what, uh, the tools by which the normative, the normal, what is permitted, as you say, to be seen as conventional, seems to track with the, um, the development of telecommunications. So I was wondering if you could say, if that makes any sense to say that it, in the first half of the book, you're talking about cinema before shifting really to television. But I wondered if you could talk a little bit about what that means within the codes and contexts of Italian cinema at this time. I mean, if you want to, of cinema perhaps, as opposed to television at this time. Yeah, I guess, you know, the first uh, half of the book is um, about the, the second half of the 20th century, like from the 50s onwards. Um, and that's uh, a time when like, cinema, the big screen, seems to, to really matter in Italy, as, uh, not just as um, a technology but also as um, a collective cultural experience. Um, as a way for a society to come together and, you know, to experience something, certain emotions, um, also to reflect on, uh, on themselves. And I start on, on the 50s and 60s, so that's the golden age of Italian cinema, because, you know, it's, it's a, I think it's a fascinating period. Um, it's a period in which Italians, after the fall of fascism, after the end of World War II, are basically working out who they are. And Italian cinema plays a major role in this process. Um, these are the years in which, um, you know, after the, the trauma of the fascist dictatorship, um, Italian society is trying to find itself again, in a sense. So um, I became interested in, the, in this process and I approached it as, as a question, right? Who, who do Italians want to be during these years? And how do they mark the defining boundaries of their collective identity. Um, and of course, you know, part of that process of um, cultural representation um, has to do 
not just with tracing the boundaries of this us, our community, but also, you know, unfortunately, um, pointing the finger uh, to those who are felt to be threats to this, uh, to the majority, to the lifestyle of the majority, to their values. Um, and I would say for most of the second half of the 20th centuries, these threats are usually homosexuals. Um, they're usually sexually active women, uh, foreigners, or racialized others. So I try to to make visible and to make sense of these dynamics of, of exclusion and um, of construction of, of a sense of collective self. Um, right, the, great, the greater we, as, as yeah. I have also heard it referred to. Um, in establishing the parameters or the, the boundaries of um, a set of common mores, of uh, precepts that are internalized, um, and the, the ejecting from that sort of, that, that centric position, um, uh, queer subjects. I was wondering if you could just tell us a little bit about, for example, two of the texts that you're very interested in, um, Il Sorpasso di Norisi, and, uh, or uh, also known as The Easy Life, which is often seen as a companion piece, if only historically, to uh, La Dolce Vita, The Sweet Life, of Federico Fellini, which are two texts I'm, um, we'll get back to the, the, again, the popular or the the well-known aspect of the texts in a moment, but I was wondering if you could um, map out some of those readings with regard to these specific two texts. Yeah. So, and I start the book with, with these two films. Um, they are two canonical Italian films in the sense that um, if you know a bit, a bit about Italian cinema, you normally, you know, you have, you have watched these films. Um, La Dolce Vita, uh, you know, made by Federico Fellini, uh, one of the most famous authors. Um, you know, it, it's also a multilingual film with an international cast. Uh, you know, amazing actors and actresses like Marcello Mastroianni, Emma Anouk, um, Anita Ekberg. Um, you know. Like all these um, canonical texts, canonical films, um, after a few years, after a few decades, the scholars write about them. Um, um, a certain kind of homogeneous narrative uh, gets, um, let's say, written about about them. Um, so I became interested in. Um, in how this film, uh, um, you know, spends very little time to um, shed light on uh, kind of marginal characters, you know, identified more or less as uh, drag queens or homosexuals. Um, and I was trying to make visible how the film really made use of them um, to indicate a certain path 
of salvation or, or damnation to the central uh, character of the film. There is the, um, the character played by Marcello Mastroianni. And, and the two parts are, you know, one, family life, um, salvation, and the other one is corruption, um, is um, the boucherie, uh, decadence. Um, this is something they said about the film. What is not said is that, you know, homosexuality, the danger of homosexuality, plays a major role um, in this um, the second path uh, that the film um, kind of explores. The, the other film is Sorpasso. You know, in Italy, it's a very famous film. Uh, the ordinary Italians know very well, uh, also because it's shown on TV very often. Perhaps in the U.S., um, it hasn't quite made it into the international film canon. Um, it is very well known in continental Europe. Um, and I was interested in writing about this film as a, as a body film, okay? uh, which is really like uh, an Anglo-American category. So there would be, you know, the road movies are uh, body films because they usually um, focus on two friends, two male friends, unless it's a romantic story. Um, this is not a way in which these films had been discussed um, uh, in Italy, at least. Um, and, you know, I wrote about this friendship, which is also very um, homoerotically charged friendship, but also one that um, seems obsessed with the danger of uh, homosexuality. Um, so, you know, the film uh, is about these two friends being so intimate, connected, but at the same time constantly um, talking about the real homosexuals. Um, so that seemed to me an exemplary film to think about the demarcation of, this, of these boundaries um, and, you know, uh, indicating who might threat outside these boundaries. The, the, the stability of this us, this collective sense. Fantastic. Um, it's so interesting. Um, I, I'm interested by a couple of things. There, there seems to be, um, you, you've referred to the, tra- to the international or the foreign threats coming from without to challenge uh, Italian social norms and mores beginning in the mid century. And, um, it's interesting that uh, there there's a sort of a double well there there are multiple transnational lines that are traveling through your study. So there's the transnational queer studies line. There's the transnational flow of tourism of tourists back and forth um, between different languages um, as they are uh, present in Italy as they live in Italy as they also have you know leave a mark in Italy too that kind of that uh, that beginning with the probably before the grand tour from mm-hmm. uh, the 19th century but the mark that's left behind on um, on the 
culture of arrival, I guess I'll call it. Um, so there's also the other, uh, one of the things about the transnational aspects of queer studies that I, I thought might be interesting to talk about is the, um, the, the sometimes temporal disconnections between things that are happening um, in one location and in one language and then in another lo- as they get translated, carried over, interpreted and incorporated into um, academic subdisciplines. I was wondering if you would talk about that, the temporalities of translation um, and the, the, the flows, I guess I'll call it, from one area to another um, and as that might be contextualized in your project. Yes, so uh, I guess we are also talking about this uh, kind of dialogue that I proposed in my book between these um, Italian films and TV series and um, mainly Anglo-American critical theory, also a kind of politicized um, critical theory. Um, And it's something, I guess, that's a bit to do with my autobiography, um, my where life has taken me. You know, I grew up in uh, in southern Italy and then moved uh, in my twenties to London for graduate school and then eventually to to the U.S. You know, this transnational trajectory has had an impact on my on my identity as, as a scholar, my way of thinking, the kind of um, books I read. Um, and um, I guess we're also talking about a sort of national film media canon, right? The film, the, the book is about Italian cinema and Italian television. So even if we, yeah, we're talking about transnational trajectories, um, the nation feature features in a major way in this project. Um, and I guess I'm saying this because it's precisely the this kind of transnational journey of my career uh, as a scholar that has um, heightened a certain awareness of the national culture. I come from and the, the cultural problems um, they are attached to that. Um, you know, I, as I, I was saying, I was trying to create a dialogue between uh, a particular strand of critical theory in the Anglo American Academy um, and um, Italian films and televisions. And this kind of critical theory is not just gender and queer theory, but also that theory that has come out of the UK, uh, the so-called cultural studies. Um, And and this dialogue, I think, would have been uh, difficult to create um, if, you know, I had studied and worked only in uh, in Italy. I was trying to to resist, uh, I'm trying to read something that might be behind your question. I was trying to resist um, what is sometimes uh, kind of imperialistic um, tendency 
or kind of authority in Anglo-American scholarship, even in the most um, transformative kind of criticism. Um, so a lot of the dialogue that I was trying to establish between Italy and Anglo-American scholarship um, has been informed by my uh, anecdotal experience and exchange with scholars from North Europe and North America. So a certain way of understanding um, not just Italy, but Southern cultures with regard to um, gender and sexuality. Well, actually, if I could, um, let, let's stay here for a second, because mm -hmm. the questions that, that I mean, um, this is not reduced. Well, that, that's a value laden term. This is not, this does not owe only to an autobiographical trajectory. I mean, those trajectories have also been formed by sociological trends in terms of available positions in universities and um, all sorts of things, right? So that um, the notion of leaving Italy to do Italian cultural studies is really, uh, it's a rich vein to, um, to tap. You know, I don't want to talk about all those metaphors about depleting veins and mining things, but uh, I think we don't necessarily think enough about the ways in which um, departing from one culture and going to another enables an interrogation, a challenging of certain precepts that could be only salutary to the to the or, original text or the uh, the text of departure. As I try to get my students to think of it, not necessarily the original text or the resource text, but. Um, the, um, one can only arrive at certain questions um, if certain questions become visible. So it's about that visibility, right? You have to see it to be it. And there is a certain activist strain to what you are doing. And I wondered if you could talk about that. I mean, it's not something that is only learned through Anglo-American um, uh, criticism or Anglo-American institutions of higher learning in those academic settings, right? So I was wondering if you could say a little bit about that, um, about the kinds of questions that become visible when you are exposed to different uh, settings in which those questions emerge. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I, I grew up as a, as a scholar, as a young scholar, um, at a different time than the one we currently uh, inhabit, where, you know, the kind of transnational global transfers of knowledge you're referring to are uh, kind of more universally available. Um, so it, it's true, uh, when we start certain um, orientations for our thinking, uh, for our research, already present themselves as um, more likely than others. Um, so, you know, this transnational journey and these transnational dialogues that are in the book are not, cannot be just choices, right? My, 
my choice. Um, yeah, something to do with um, you know the state of academy, the Italian academy in the nineties, when you know was interested in gender studies, um, and at that time it was difficult to um, to find what I was interested in. A kind of um, school uh, that placed um, an intense, robust conversation um, question around genders, um, gender with sexuality and class um, and race. So in search of that dialogue, I left um, for, for the UK. Um, you know, I'm not saying that this... Um, what we call intersectional conversations were not happening in Italy in the 90s. I, Sergio Rigoletto, could not see them. So um, I had to go to, to the UK. And, um, and over there, I studied with uh, Lynn Seagal. Um, so I'm talking about so Burbeck College, a certain socialist tradition of feminist scholarship and feminist theory that was central to my academic education as well as my political education. Um, so th- there was a kind of um, scholarship, a kind of school of thought that um, could not separate um, an analysis of things such as gender and sexuality from a serious commitment to you know, a fight for social justice. Uh, so class, ethnicity, race were as important as questions of gender and sexuality. That's the, what I was reading in the books that were given to me in graduate school, and that's what I was seeing the lectures that I was um, listening to. My book, obviously, privileges uh, gender and sexuality. Um, I, I think, you know, I, I've done my best to acknowledge the, the value of certain media experience that are accessible to lots of people, okay? Um, and here I'm bringing the question of, of class in. Um, I'm not trying to make a, a populistic argument. Um, I'm just um, trying to highlight the importance of, for us, scholars of media cultures, not to shy away from, uh, um, you know, what has been described for a very long time, at least, you know, when I was undergraduate, as um, vulgar, as not deserving scholarly attention. And that's, you know, the lesson I learned from uh, uh, British cultural studies. So the idea that, you know, it's in mainstream culture, it's in popular uh, film culture, that the most insidious, um, toxic aspects of our culture can be engaged, can be uh, unpacked and, and resisted. Um. That's so helpful um, to hear you talk about that. And, you know, uh, if I'm not mistaken, yours 
is the first book published in this in this series, right? Can you confirm that? That is true. Yeah. So I actually wondered if you could uh, sort of turn around and, and look where, where you came from in that regard. So our listeners should know that this is the, the first book that you've published in the Italian language following many other publications in English. I mean, it's worth saying that had you wanted to publish this study in English, it would have been received by uh, a certain public, read by certain people. And um, I, I was hoping you could talk about the choices that guided you to work to decide to work in Italian right now and, and talk about the reception of this book on um, uh, gender and sexuality in 2020, 2021, Italy, where it's been published and is um, available. Yeah, um, I've been writing on Italian cinema and television for, let's say, 15, 20 years. Um, so, you know, I've been working in the UK, in the US, and because of this, I've been writing and publishing uh, almost exclusively in uh, the English language, um, which is something that, you know, entails certain advantages. If you want your books or your essays to be read by, by more, more people. Um, this book, I think, came um, at a time when I felt it was important to write um, in Italian. Um, you know, it wasn't just a way of reconnecting uh, with my mother tongue. There's been very important, by the way, um, the, the experience of finding yourself, finding the language that was part of yourself during the first half of your life. It's, um, it's an experience, even a political experience that I value very much. But for sure, you know, I was in writing a book in Italian, I was hoping to to connect with a certain kind of, of readership that is, you know, um, robustly interpolated by this by this book, uh, right? It's on Italian cinema and television. So I wanted to to write also or primarily for Italian readers who might not necessarily you know read English language books um, you know this is a time when in Europe especially in non-English language countries in the universities uh, there is a kind of process that they call internationalization that means this push to to write in English more and more it's a way of course of making your publications um, more available. Um, it's also a shame, right? Because linguistically is a way of, of conforming or, you know, trying to find one language to share, you know, certain conversation. I mean, it's also losing something uh, of our, not just linguistic baggage, also our cultural baggage. So very, um, I don't know, nostalgically maybe, I was trying to go for something that is perhaps has become a bit more anachronistic uh, that is, you know, writing in Italian.
Sergio, it's so interesting that you should say that because on the other hand, it strikes me as more, much more of a vanguard position to be in, to be the lead book in a, in, in a series uh, for a press, Melteni, right? That um, I'm wondering if it, we wanted to historicize that. It's not so much nostalgic as it is. There is now a reading public in Italy for a press to be able to publish a book for. I'm not saying that there haven't been reading publics previously, but one does need to make the case to a publisher that there will be a reading public that will in fact buy books, right? So it's about it's about historicizing that moment. And you you get at this, I, well, I wondered if you had any response to what I just said, that's not so much nostalgic as it is about the um, distance traveled um, between the 1990s when you looked around and you didn't see what you wanted to study and are now able to, in fact, if we wanted to characterize it this way, find a market for the very subjects that you want to talk about. Yeah, in a way, it's true what you say. I think, you know, in Italy, in the in the publishing industry, in the academic uh, book market, we are seeing, I guess, a kind of renaissance or heightened interest in uh, in a certain kind of um, potentially political academic publications that take very seriously uh, questions of class and, and gender and sexuality um, at different levels, you know, in sociology, in um, uh, media, and so on. And of course, you know, in relation to gender, there is a very robust and long tradition of, of feminist um, scholarship. Um, but I think, you know, for sure, the number of of courses that we see in Italian universities that focus on questions of gender and sexuality have increased in a way that I would have never expected in the, you know, in the nineties when I was studying. Um, and, you know, we shouldn't forget, you know, very vibrant um, publishing um, market in Italy, um, especially for film and television. Um, that, that I think you know, my book found an audience and uh, a publisher also because of that. There is, there is already a lot going on in Italy. Uh, and well, for sure, you know, interest in these conversations between, uh, uh, with, with other contexts. Um, right. What I wanted to say is certainly the, uh, the focus um, and the, as you say, the rich bibliography of um, scholarly work that's been done on popular cinema, for example, in Italy is, I mean, um, it, it's really, um, uh, as I say, been a very rich line of inquiry for some time. However, it's also worth saying that those studies of media or popular cinema or popular television haven't always focused on gender and sexuality. So that's the more intersectional aspect of your study that I think is so, um, so valuable to us. Uh, I wondered, you know, again, in historicizing the moment in which this book appears, it seems really important to me to also talk about the um, the ways in which Italian television as an audiovisual text and product have traveled out along those, you know, digital video on demand 
circuits. And it seems to me, I mean, you talk, could you talk a little bit about how in your introduction you characterize, for example, um, the character of uh, Spadino in Suburra and to, to mark that as a very particular moment in Italian television and media history, I think his openness, his, his deliberate avowedness of his queerness. Yeah. Um, in the book, I have two chapters on, on television. Um, one is on the first uh, lesbian-themed uh, TV film commissioned by the Italian broadcaster, uh, Rai. And the second um, case study is really Subora, as you said. This is the first um, Italian uh, Netflix series, so the first... Um, TVC commissioned by, by Netflix. Um, it's also the first um, Italian TV series whose central character um, could be read as um, homosexual. Or at least, you know, the, the first TV series that openly acknowledges this issue and makes it an important part of the story. And that's the, and doesn't kill and doesn't kill off the queer character. That's that's very true. <laughs> he doesn't have to pay with his life for being as as io so frosho. He doesn't have to pay for that. Absolutely. That's the the a major difference from other uh, TV series, Italian TV series that we had seen on uh, on Netflix like Gomorrah for example. Um, they you know, killed Salvatore Conte right off, didn't they? Once they once they uncovered his bisexuality. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> so you know about Suburra, I, I was interested in this convergence. You know, the first Netflix TV series and Italian TV series, and and also the first that would focus on homosexual character um so i was trying to, to to think how does netflix and netflix italy uh get to this point and should this um i don't know step forward just be um celebrated or shall we see what the terms and conditions of this newly found uh visibility for a queer character would be. Um, you know, I try not to be uh, too um, optimistic and um, and to celebrate too much, uh, but to be practical, to think about what um, video-on-demand services like Netflix are, are right? They're commercial enterprises, uh, if they think that a lot of people are interested in certain kind of stories, then they would put the money to, to make them. Um, and Suburra arrives um, on Netflix um, at a time in which Netflix, I think, has already tested on a global scale with its subscribers the, the appeal or certain of certain stories um, focusing somehow more or less on uh, you know LGBT characters. Um, so you know I think that might be interested to 
for viewers interested in um, in TV series to to see what changes from Gomorra, uh, that's the other famous Italian TV series, to um, to to, to Suburra. Like a TV series like Gomorra seems less interested in making these references to um, to queerness too explicit or to give them a name. Um, and yet, you know, uh, very slowly Nature realizes uh, by paying attention to what fans write about online that there is an interest in this uh, in these kind of stories. And this is something that Dana Renga has written about very eloquently in, uh, in her book, um, Sympathetic Perpetrators. So I, I read this, this TV series, yes, it's a kind of thermometer of where Italian screen culture is, but also as a thermometer, a certain kind of globalized media experience that Netflix um, produces. Um. So absolutely. And that's great. That, that's a great overview of the television market. I want to take um, a step um, to the side because of the, you know, the parallel way in which you're treating both television and, and cinema and ask you to do the same thing for two film texts that you just did for the two television texts, Gomorra and Suburra, to talk about instead um, uh, Le Fate Ignoranti and then Call Me By Your Name. I'm, I'm sure that listeners would like to hear you talk, uh, especially about your reading of uh, Call Me By Your Name. So shall I start with that? Yeah, I'll start with Call Me By Your Name. <laughs> yeah, let's start with Call, you, call, call Me By Your Name. Uh, I'm just to say, I mean, I could, an, I could answer my own question and say that the, just the same, there's the same historical development, if you oh, like. Yeah. I know that sometimes you're, you're less interested in the teleology of certain historical arguments, but it is the case that Ospetek's film does precede um, Guadagnino's by some 15 years and makes possible certain films by Guadagnino as a result, I think. So we could we could just cut to the chase with uh, "Call Me by Your Name." Yeah, I, I see what you were asking. Uh, yeah, I mean, "The Ignorant Fairies," the 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 film by Ospetek, um, is it kind of um, reflects on this very important moment in Italian popular culture, film culture, a time in which you know queerness is becoming normalized at the cinema. Uh, what I've described earlier on about television with, with Subura happens you know, 15 years earlier um, on the big screen. Um, and of course, you know, it's a certain kind of queerness um, that is linked to uh, a male vision and male stories that, um, you know, Find more more space than than other uh, other stories, um, but 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 the Ospedek film is still even though it's built on a male vision, you know, male gay director, um, you know, spends lots of time actually to reflect about friendship between women, uh, the central character played by Margarita Bui and. Uh, and gay men. So I write about the political value of that encounter between, uh, you know, 
feminism in a way and and gay liberation and as he he gets played out in the early 2000 um call right. me- and, as, and as a sort of um uh coming out story held hostage in a way uh by the spoiler alert death of the of Margarita Bowie's husband and her um posthumous uh posthumous to him anyway discovery of his gayness and her and her relationship her friendship that then um, develops with um, his male lover. So that's what you've just described. And then, um, you know, about 15 years later, right, uh, Luca Guaranino makes and releases uh, Call Me By Your Name, an English language film that is, however, set somewhere in the in the vague recesses <laughs> of the North, not exactly precise, right? Yeah, somewhere in Northern Italy. Um, <laughs> so it's... Um... It's a film that uh, got lots of coverage, right? It's a film that I, I teach, and I've rarely seen a, a film that triggers such an intense emotional response in my students, um, no matter whether they are LGBT or not. Um, I guess, you know, I've started thinking about this film to make sense of this uh, strong emotional impact I have seen by talking to people. Um, the, the starting point of my thinking about this film is, um, you know, I, I like wasting time reading reviews of the films I like. Okay, I read lots of them. Um, and when... Call Me By Your Name came out, I noticed that, you know, critics, journalists uh, were repeating all the time this thing. They were saying, you know, this is a film that has at the center a love story between two men, but it's really a universal story. Um, so I became fascinated with this uh, double kind of rhetorical gesture, right? this way of acknowledging the particularity of the story, you know, being a homosexual love story, but then, you know, reducing it to a level of irrelevance. Um, you know, I, I ask, you know, why do people keep on saying this? Why do, we, do they say it now? Right? Uh, you know, what's the value of calling um, a queer love story or a gay love story, a universal story in 2018, 17. That's when it came out. Um, so, you know, I tried to, to reflect on how the film tries to tell a kind of universal story. And by that, I mean uh, how the film really tries hard to uh, tell a fantasy, a fantasy of a world in which you know, the love between a man and another man uh, is not a problem. It's not seen as a problem. Um, and I take that really seriously. I see how the film, at the level of the story, but also aesthetically, tries to tell this kind of, uh, of story. Uh, but also how the film fails in the... Um, in the pursuit of this of this fantasy, there is something very dark in the film, um, especially in the in the second half of the film. Um, some kind of 
ghosts from from the past that that haunt this story. Um, and also, you know, I was I was interested in how the film kind of tricks us, right? It makes us believe that the film um, that the story does not end well uh, because it is trying to tell a coming of age story, and coming of age stories about first love are doomed to to end, right? Um, but you know, if you actually, if we look closely, the film does not end well because some ghosts are still lingering, some ghosts that haunt the the experience of homosexual desire in the film. Um, so you know, I try to show that even though "Call Me by Your Name" is set in the eighties, it's actually a film about the present. Um, and, and that this should be taken very, very seriously. Um, it's true that it's a film set in the 80s, and that's, um, as everybody probably knows, a very painful decade for, for homosexuals and, and all the homosexuals. Um, AIDS and all the fear and destruction that that um, epidemic brought Um and the film tries to say something about that period, not in an obvious way, um, or, or to put it another way, tries to say something about the relation between this painful past, the 80s, and this present, this time that we inhabit, um, that seems so different. Right? That's what we keep on hearing, that now we live in a post-gay time of uh, kind of equality legislations and queer-friendly Netflix series. Um, but, but the film maybe is trying to tell us something different. And it's trying to tell us something different all the way up to its very conclusion, isn't it? Um, so you're talking about time. Would you care to say a few words about that extraordinary rupture it's either an extraordinary rupture of time or an extraordinary suturing of time i haven't really decided which mm-hmm. at the very end uh as um elio looks into the fire and we look at elio we 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 gaze upon elio uh gazing and thinking i wondered if you could say something about time and temporality there yeah it's such um powerful emotional moment right we stay for i think around three minutes with him, the camera still looking at him crying in front of the, the fire. Um, you know, I think you know, that what makes that moment especially heartbreaking um, is not just the, you know, the end of the, of the love story. Um, you know, that's my opinion. Um, what I try to argue in, in the film, what makes it heartbreaking is the fact that the film, in very subtle ways, has shown to this uh, teenager that the path to um, being different and being different in the film might be perhaps becoming gay or becoming heterosexual, 
that path is not viable. It's too risky, too dangerous. Um, so I think that's what we are confronting in that moment. Um, that moment when, you know, I guess queer teenagers um, of a certain generation, or even these days, um, is something they can identify with. When, you know, it seems that there are no alternatives to the one inevitable path that society places in front of us. You know, it's interesting because I started, you started actually in talking about le norme traviate, about the upending of norms and also the rendering visible of um, of certain uh, possibilities. And this is about not only, the film doesn't so much foreclose those possibilities as shine a light on that foreclosure. And uh, so in a way, I'm really grateful for the way that you both historicize it and contextualize it because on the one hand, you have queer kids who are benefiting from the it, it gets better mm-hmm. movement and the, the 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 glee and the post glee world where um, being a queer kid is you know not marginal at all but rather in some ways quite celebrated. And at the same time, the ghosts that you call it that that come back, whether it's heartbreak or whether it's specifically the queer heartbreak of AIDS in the 1980s that the film so deftly um, accomplishes. And speaking of deafness, that you accomplish in what is really a tour de force reading of that of that film, for which I thank you. Um, that's at the end of your book, The Reading of Call Me By Your Name. And we are approaching the end of our time today. And so I'd like to conclude my conversation with Sergio Rigoletto, um, who has been talking with us about his uh, wonderful new study, Le Norme Traviate. Uh, It's in Italian, um, published by an Italian uh, publishing house, Melteni. And we always end uh, Sergio Rigoletto inviting our guests to tell us about what they're working on currently. And so I... And here to ask you that question, what are you currently working on? <laughs> I'm working on uh, on two books. Um, one is on this uh, amazing, uh, unforgettable film actress and theater actress called Anna Magnani. Um, and I'm also writing uh, a, another book on um, the kind of queer media cultures and media activism in the Mediterranean and in the global South. That's what an interesting outgrowth from uh, Le Norme Traviate. I can see how the intersectional approach that you bring to bear on, uh, on your subject there is um, informing uh, and um, entailing uh, this new project. Uh, Sergio Rigoletto from the University of Oregon has been talking with us about Le Norme Traviate, We are very grateful and we are signing off uh, on today's um, discussion from the Italian Studies Channel on the New Books Network. I'm Ellen Nirenberg. Thank you so much for listening.